Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, January 24th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to dive into the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Y-Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. So since the last time we did a news episode, a lot of news has hit the site. Uh, some of this is new, some of this is old, uh, but we want to get to all of it because a lot of it is big stuff. Uh, it seems like there's more trouble in the Star Wars universe. Last week, we heard rumblings that the Disney plus Obi-Wan Kenobi TV series might be not happening, that it had been completely canceled, and that was blown off as just rumors, but it turns out there is something to those rumors because uh, production has been shut down. Brad, what do we know? Yeah, it's not quite as drastic as it sounds, but they're uh, they're definitely pulling back the speed with which that they were moving towards production, um, and that's largely because it sounds like uh, Lucasfilm uh, and Kathleen Kennedy were not uh, necessarily satisfied with the scripts that were turned in uh, by screenwriter Hossein Amini. Uh, there's no details as to like what, what that means, but it just seems like maybe whatever the uh, what was in those scripts wasn't as good as they hoped. By the way, this and, is weird because at like Celebration or D23, she had said that the scripts were already turned in. So it's 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 so weird. That like you know that that was so long ago, but I don't know. Okay, go on. Sorry. Yeah. So I mean, and, and you know, I when you look at it that way, I would imagine they've probably just been busy with episode nine, and maybe just didn't get a chance to hunker down and really look at this more properly before they moved into production. Yeah. Um, but previously, rumors had said that McGregor was walking away, that maybe uh, director uh, Deborah Chow, who's also going to be the showrunner, was walking away. But that's not the case. They're both still fully on board. Uh, they just need some reworking. Uh, w- apparently, one source uh, that Collider talked to, um, or sorry, not Collider, but uh, the Hollywood Reporter, said that the scripts for Kenobi were maybe treading too similar ground as The Mandalorian did, because part of it dealt with uh, Obi-Wan protecting young Luke on Tatooine, uh, maybe even Leia elsewhere. And that felt like maybe it hit too close to the idea of Mando protecting Baby Yoda uh, in the first season of the the series that we've seen so far. 
Um, but yeah, you and feel, I, you... I, I do want to confirm that because I've seen a casting breakdown where they were they were going out to cast a young Luke and a young uh, girl the same age. So, I mean, who knows if that's Leia, but I'm assuming it's Leia. It had the same, like, eyes and hair color and stuff, so. You, you would think that the, the basic premise of that is something that they would have known for a while now and would, and would have thought, hey, hold on a minute, guys. Maybe this is too close <laughs> to the Mandalorian. Uh, so I, I'm not necessarily sure if I buy that the, the reasoning for it was uh, being too similar to the Mandalorian. But uh, regardless, the, the uh, production's not moving forward as quickly as I thought. Uh, Ewan McGregor offered up. Um, his own um, commentary on the matter. He was at a Birds of Prey promotional event last night, and someone there was able to ask him about what was going on with Obi-Wan. And he said, "Uh, we just pushed the shoot to the beginning of next year. The scripts are really good. I saw 90% of the writing. Uh, There was all this bullshit about being creative differences and all that stuff. None of it is true. They just pushed the dates. However, in the same breath, he also he also says, uh, like I, like I just said a second ago too. Episode nine came out. Everyone had more time to read the stuff that had been written, and they felt like they wanted to do more work on it, so they slid the shoot. Not nearly as dramatic as it sounds online. So those those two statements are kind of uh, they kind of <laughs> counter each other because uh, if the scripts are so good, then why did they have to push it back and do you know do more work on it? Uh, so obviously, some work needs to be done. I do feel like. This isn't nearly as drastic as everyone thinks it is, though. I think that the, the the idea that it was nearly canceled is what worried people, and that was never in the cards. Uh, and, anything, and we should mention, like, the, the rumors of that come from, like, people that were ready for production, like p- crew members and stuff being told that, like, you know, that the, it was, the job wasn't coming up. Do you know what I mean? Like, basically being told, like, oh, you can go home. So right. th- that's where the stuff kind of leaked, and people thought it was completely canceled. But it isn't completely canceled. It's just pushed off. Yeah, and at the end of the day, this should be a good thing. Like, I think people get worried about this when it comes to big franchises, especially Star Wars, since it's held under such scrutiny. But at the end of the day, they read the scripts. They're like, this isn't up to where we want it to be quality-wise. We need to do some more work on it. So they're trying to make it better, which should be a good thing. And it shouldn't be people shouldn't be freaking out about this. So I, I think people forget just how hard it is to make a production, let alone a production that is supposed to be of blockbuster quality and is one of the biggest franchises of all time. It, it takes a lot of time to get it right. And you, something like this, you don't want to screw it up, especially since, you know, there have been some missteps here and there with, with Solo. Uh, and some people, you know, think with Rise of Skywalker as well. Others with The Last Jedi, you know, but it's it's one of those things where Star Wars is just under the, the, the magnifying glass so yeah. much. That every little problem is like, oh, my God, the world's ending. I, I will say this, though. It, it does seem like I know Hollywood has a lot of problems in development. There's a lot of stuff going beyond uh, behind the scenes. Like, look at how many people were attached to Uncharted or even uh, Gemini Man. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that that is regular stuff that happens. But it does seem like it seems like more times than not on, at Lucasfilm, stuff is going wrong. And I don't know who's to blame here, but it feels like something in the system that is producing these projects, like, is they have not cracked it yet. And I'm I'm wondering what that is, and I, I can't wait to eventually read, like, the behind-the-scenes, you know, tale of the Disney Star Wars years, because I, I you, feel like, what? Oh, I, I was just going to ask, do you think, though, because of, like, the visibility <laughs> of Star Wars, that it's just, um, it's more magnified whenever we something goes wrong with the Star Wars product? I, I do think that is true, but I, I also think, like, you know, look at Marvel. 
and things have gone wrong in Marvel, but like out of the the twenty something films, how many times have we heard of like a director being replaced or a writer being re- like you know it, it happens, but it seems like you know there, it seems like there's more people that have been attached to make these Star Wars movies or TV shows that haven't made them than actually have at this point. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know. You might be right. You might be right. Uh, one thing that does make me nervous here is the. I think Hollywood Reporter story said that they were kind of replacing the writing team and they were going to try to condense the story down to four episodes. I don't know. How many was it before? Do you know, Brad? Was it six or eight? Uh, it was supposed to be six. Yeah. And, that, and now now it might be down to four. Yeah, so that 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 seems like a little bit uh, like that seems like a big move. That doesn't seem like like we're polishing up these drafts. That seems like if you're cutting a six episode series down to four, that seems like a massive change. But I don't know. What, what, what do you think, Brad? I don't know. If anything, maybe it's just because they they realized that they were trying to fill too much space out, and they don't need to do that. Maybe yeah. if they want to tell a better story, you you have to condense it. You know, that's that's always been a big problem with. American television in general is that there's always these filler episodes that don't really progress the plot much and are just there because they have to fill a full season order. Uh, so I th- if anything, if they figure out a way to condense this, then they realize that some of the story isn't necessarily uh, needed in, in there and they can tell a better one by condensing the episode order. Yeah, for sure. Uh, HT, are you, does this make you any less excited? I mean, were you even excited in the first place for an Obi-Wan TV series? I mean, it does have Deborah Chow, who is an yes. incredible director. I do like Deborah Chow. I do like Ian McGregor. So I was mod- moderately excited for this. I can't say I was just like hopping out of my seat yeah. for it. But um, yeah, it really changed my excitement because we don't really know anything about it uh, other than like the very, very basic details. And that's almost rumor um, yeah. level too. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and there's some other changes. We, we mentioned Marvel and, uh, you know, they, they have had some changes there with director teams and writers. We're, we're hearing Captain Marvel 2 is replacing their directors and has got a new writer. HD, what do we know? Yeah, so original directors for Captain Marvel, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, are not returning to helm the sequel. Um, and Marvel Studios is currently searching for a female director to helm Captain Marvel 2, which has now been greenlit. Uh, but they have tapped a uh, new writer for the film, and that's WandaVision series writer uh, Megan McDonnell. She will be writing Captain Marvel 2 as uh, Marvel looks to a prospective 2022 release date and uh, is on the hunt for what they're searching for is a female director specifically, but they haven't uh, narrowed down any people yet. And who is this person that's writing it? Like, what what else have they done, Megan McDonald? Megan McDonald actually hasn't really done much. Um, WandaVision is the first major credit for her. She began the series as a staff writer and was promoted to story editor. Um, but it should be noted that uh, WandaVision does uh, include a, uh, a character from Captain Marvel. That's Monica Rambeau, now fully grown up. So perhaps uh, Megan McDonald's um, attachment to Captain Marvel 2 could mean that uh, Monica Rambeau has a more central part of the story for Captain Marvel 2. So um, that's a possibility of why she has been brought on board. But Marvel does like keeping things in the family. Yeah, and and we had heard rumors that Marvel was not completely happy with their uh, with, with uh, Bowden and Fleck, and uh, they're looking. So they're looking to re, uh, replace them, or, or I guess they were never attached to the sequel. I should say replace, but they're looking to hire a female director for Captain Marvel two. And HJ, I, I got to ask you, 
who should direct Captain Marvel 2? Who should they be going after? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think... Oh, no. Now I'm like, I'm on the spot. I can't think of anyone. I feel like I'm the person in that Billy Eichner sketch when he says, name a woman. I can't name a woman. <laughs> what, what about um, Olivia Wilde? Olivia Wilde would be fun. Oh, I I was thinking the first woman that came to mind actually was Lorene Scafaria, who uh, directed Hustlers. Um, and I think that she has a really great grasp of how to frame female friendship specifically. Yeah. And uh, I think that would be actually a great fit for that. Um, so I, I do hope that whenever whoever they bring on for this, they don't make it such a uh, uh, an obvious sort of separation between the the sort of drama scenes and the action scenes. Because like a lot of like problems with Captain Marvel was that it, that it felt very much like the action scenes were felt shot by a second unit director. And um, I hope <laughs> that there's more cohesion there with uh, whoever they bring on board for Captain Marvel too. Yeah, there is that stigma. Who was it? There was a filmmaker that met with Marvel and was basically told that, like, don't worry about the action. We'll we'll handle that or something. Um, yeah, I forgot I, who that was. But, I uh, can't remember. I think it was another it was another female director, too. And it might yeah. have been for Captain Marvel. And she was like, I don't want that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one of the things I liked most about Captain Marvel 1 was that relationship between Carol and her best friend. And uh, obviously that is not going to be the same here because, you know, you're jumping ahead in time. And now uh, the Donna daughter is daughter Monica, I believe. Is that I'm right? Sorry? Who who's the daughter? Is it Monica? It's Monica. Yeah, Maria is okay. So yeah, uh, uh, so I would like to see uh, you know something done with that relationship in the sequel, but I don't know. We'll have to see. Also, just to uh, make, make it clear, I was uh, Lucretia Martel turned down Black Widow because she said they essentially told her not to worry about the action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's go from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to the DC Cinematic Universe. It looks like J.J. Abrams and his bad robot production company is going to be getting, getting their feet wet in the DC Universe uh, with Justice League Dark. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah. So J.J. Abrams is uh, seemingly interested in getting back in the superhero business since he never got a chance to do that Superman movie so many years ago. Uh, bad Robot is apparently... Uh, interested in developing Justice League Dark movies and TV projects. Um, basically, they're getting ready to take meetings with talent reps and uh, the writing clients on talking about which characters from this DC Comics team will get their own projects. Uh, for those of you guys that don't know, Justice League Dark, it's a superhero team that uh, leans more towards the supernatural side of the DC Comics universe. Uh, it started in 2011. And the first group consisted of John Constantine, uh, Madame Xanadu, Dead Man, Shade, The Changing Man, and Zatanna. Um, and if you've heard about, think you've heard about this before, that's because Guillermo del Toro was once wanting to do a live-action Justice League dark movie. He wanted to incorporate a Swamp Thing into it, uh, but it just never got off the ground. But now it seems like Bad Robot has interest in doing something with that, which makes sense since they have always leaned more towards supernatural monster movie uh, kind of projects in their own camp. Uh, so this is it's an early thing right now, and uh, it would definitely be interesting to see it move forward, knowing you know what Bad Robot has done in the past with sci-fi and and other sorts of movies. You know they have the Cloverfield franchise uh, and Super Eight and Lost, of course. So uh, seeing them tackle Justice League Dark would certainly be interesting, and uh, it would t- begin or continue to take the the Warner Brothers approach to the DC Extended Universe on the big screen in a different direction. Yeah, it's interesting because you know. 
J.J. Abrams Bad Robot made that deal with Warner Brothers, and he's now there. And I'm I'm sure they brought him into a meeting where like, what do you want to do with the DC universe? And it's interesting that he didn't pick like you know Batman or Superman. I mean, I guess Batman's spoken for at this point, but you know some of these big characters. He was like, oh, I want Justice League Dark. <laughs> like that seems like an odd choice, no? I mean, it may, it may not even be JJ that's that's yeah. pushing it, you know, because uh, Bad Robot, you know, they have uh, Hannah Ming- uh, Minghella and Ben Stevenson, uh, yeah, who yeah. are the head of movies and TV. So it might be just something that they, you know, pitched to JJ, and JJ was like, "Yeah, sure, go for it." Yeah, it, it, it seems like that they're taking like the Guardians of the Galaxy approach. To this, like, you know, let's let's make this property that isn't, you know, beloved by you know fans outside of comics, and uh, maybe we can do something with that because, uh, yeah. It seems like there's some toxic stuff going around <laughs> the main DC uh, stuff. Speaking of which, uh, you know, uh, release the Snyder Cut has become a big thing, uh, much to our uh, dismay. And uh, it seems like the writer of Fanboys wants to make a sequel to Fanboys, but it's being focused on releasing the Snyder Cut. Brad, what is going on here? Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, uh, Fanboys was this comedy that was released in 2009. It was directed by Cal Newman, uh, written by Adam F. Goldberg and Ernest Cline. And it uh, focused on a group of friends in 1999 who learned that one of one of them has cancer and may not make it to the debut of Star Wars The Phantom Menace. So in order to try and see it before he uh, possibly passes away, they decide to break into Skywalker Ranch in order to get a cut of Phantom Menace and see it uh, before anybody else. And so that same premise would basically be applied. Oh, and, and by the way, it should be said that that Fanboys uh, movie had like a lot of huge stars before there were huge stars in it. It, it did, yeah. And Chris, Chris Bell was in it. Um, uh, Dave think... Baruchel, Dan Fogler... It had a bunch of cameos from people, too. Um, like so, Seth yeah, Rogen's it, in it or something, right? Yeah, Seth Rogen has, like, three different roles in it. <laughs> and it has Danny McBride and yeah. uh, Craig Robinson. And it has Star Wars cameos from Carrie Fisher and Ray Park. And uh, Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith are in it. So it's it's got a lot of fun cameos. It, it's a and bit of a che- cheesy, campy sort of comedy. Yeah, it's also notable because uh, Harvey Weinstein, uh, this was released through the Weinstein Company, and he kind of got his scissor hands all over this, so it became a bit of a mess. The release co- cut is not the director's cut. Uh, the director's cut was shown at like Celebration many years ago, and I got a... I don't know. Got got huge acclaim, so I'm surprised that like that has not gotten out there somehow. Uh, so anyway, so, so so there are some fans of this movie, but uh, what about uh, the sequel? Yeah, so the sequel would essentially be roughly a similar situation where a group of friends would try and get their hands on the Snyder Cut, which hasn't been released yet, and it seems like it's it's not something that is necessarily actively in development anywhere, but it's merely just an idea that trying to see if they can figure out. Uh, to how to make it work at some point because uh, so there's this um, blog out there uh, called discussing film uh, and they have a Twitter account that is being parodied uh, with a fake account that tweets fake news stories. And one of the fake news stories was that Adam F. Goldberg was working on a sequel to fanboys that would focus on getting the Snyder cut. And Adam Goldberg saw it, retweeted it and said, Hey, if Ernest Klein is up for it, then I am. And so then after that, uh, he said that he was going to be meeting with Kyle Newman uh, this week, as in like right now, uh, to discuss the possibility of Fanboys 2. 
And apparently around the same time, Dan Fogler, who stars in the movie uh, and is in the Fantastic Beasts franchise now, uh, said that he wants to try and get the group back together to do something as well. So this is merely uh, just an idea at this point, essentially a pipe dream. Who knows if there's a good story that can be cracked here that isn't just, you know, a beat for beat remake of fanboys, but just with, you know, DC references and cameos instead of Star Wars. Um, but the prospect of it does sound something fun. At the very least, it could help, you know, DC fans lick their wounds since they're probably never going to see the Snyder Cut. Do, do you think they would release? Well, I, I guess this would have to be made by Warner Brothers, right? I mean, I, I mean, don't know, because Fanboys wasn't, you know, made by uh, Lucasfilm or 20th yeah. Century Fox. So huh. they probably they probably would just have to figure out licensing rights and, and that kind of thing. So it, I guess it depends. Maybe what they'll do is they'll make Fanboys 2 about trying to get the Snyder Cut. And then when they'll finally get their hands on it and they'll show the entirety of the Snyder Cut within Fanboys 2. <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to happen, Brad. I, I, it sounds pretty realistic to me. Okay, let's move on for that from the big franchise stuff. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is doing the press rounds, and he made a comment about how he's at war with blockbusters. HDA Europe, that's up for the site. Uh, what does he mean? Uh, well, Quentin Tarantino has suggested in a new interview that there is a quote-unquote war for movies taking place between original filmmaking and the commercial product owned by conglomerates. Uh, he essentially expressed his displeasure in this interview with Deadline that uh, there's the dominance of blockbuster IP films over the pop cultural landscape, such as films like uh, the Marvel Comics films, Star Wars, Godzilla, James Bond, and uh, that 2019 was a great year for original films that may be the quote-unquote last stand for those kind of original films. He didn't exactly name his own film, but he did sort of imply that they are that it is within that sort of auteur-driven movie that isn't um, under a recognizable IP uh, or from a franchise. So uh, he seems to be, you know, kind of throwing his weight behind the whole Scorsese versus Marvel conversation and uh, um, basically argued for uh, more support for original films so that they won't be completely blocked out at the uh, at the movie theaters. Yeah, but at the same time, he was, you know, last year attached to write and possibly direct the Star Trek movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. This is what Tarantino is saying, but um, and it might just be his way of trying to uh, to give more uh, buzz to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But um, I can see what he's saying because it is harder for um, auteurs and mid mid budget directors to uh, get a film in theater in theaters. Uh, and like get the support of studios if it's something that's like not recognizable or Tarantino, for example, if he wasn't such a brand name, then he wouldn't have had such uh, support from Sony in getting his film in the theaters as well. So he does have a point, but yeah, it is a little bit hypocritical, but uh, you know, Tarantino is not the, not a, it's a little, is kind of well known for sticking his foot in his mouth occasionally. (laughs) I'm just wondering, like, you know, this is a view that's held by a lot of film geeks. I mean, including probably everybody here, right? Like, we, you know, I love big budget blockbuster films, but I want more original stories because, you know, we're going to run out of remaking and sequelizing all these big, you know, budget stuff. And where are we going to be in, like, you know, 10, 20 years? (laughs) Because we'll have nothing to remake. Um, And that's not why I want new stuff. I, You know, I like new stories. Uh, But it seems like nobody can solve this problem because it seems like, 
even the people with money, like the people like uh, Megan Ellison, who uh, is a hero of film, I would say, uh, you know, she's putting her money or her dad's money, whatever. She's putting lots of money into making ambitious, original things, and she can't even make it work. So, like, how, how do you solve this problem, HD? I, I, I know, like, you know, tons of smart people with lots of money have spent a lot of time trying to figure this out, but uh, you have 20 seconds on a podcast. How do, how do we solve it? Um... It's easy. We kill the Batman. <laughs> okay, then. Here you go. No, I, I honestly, I feel like, I don't know, this is a, a, a something I, I'm just pulling out of my butt right now. But I think we look at these streaming services as like the end of cinema, but I think they will end up saving us. I feel like, you know, once you have people subscribed and they are... um Okay, let's compare this to like yellow journalism. Back in the day when uh, people had to be on a news a corner yelling about uh, you know the latest news story, and newspapers had to like basically what what's on the internet now like make up shit so that people would buy the paper. Uh, that was solved when people started subscribing to newspapers, right? Like the subscription made the news better, and I, I know this is like a of crazy analogy but maybe if we're all subscribing to these services uh and they're getting our money maybe they can use that money because they know we're going to be getting this much money a month from our subscriber base they can use this money to to create more ambitious and take some more chances than they would normally because you know normally when you create uh a new original story and release it into the theater nobody could show up Right. At least, you know, that you have this income stream coming in. So, uh, Brad, could could streaming be the solve for original stories? I mean, I guess it probably already is with TV shows, right? I mean, sure. But like that's essentially just a different delivery way, way of yeah. getting television, you know, so there's not much of a change there. This that would be a big change for the movies, though. And in a way, it would be you know, disappointing. Like, sure, it's great that Netflix and, and, and Hulu and Amazon are giving chances to movies that otherwise might have a hard time getting financing when they're going to the big screen, but they're also not, you know, being readily available in a, in a wide release that a lot of blockbusters are. And that's yeah. that's upsetting, because even though a lot of people don't think it's necessary to see certain movies on the big screen that, you know, aren't big action blockbusters with, you know, that require a huge sound system and the biggest screen possible it's still nice to be able to go to the theater and see those movies um but again you know this that the, the biggest problem there too is that it comes down to the theatrical experience dwindling in its quality i mean what you're saying peter is actually already happening you're yeah. seeing uh, directors like martin scorsese noah baumbach uh heading to netflix to get their movies financed when they couldn't get them financed in the uh main studio system in hollywood and yet and while they have gotten more eyes on it because of that, uh, t dozens more films end up getting buried because Netflix, uh, while they give that support to uh, creators, also just bombard you with so much content because they're very, once they get those subscribers, they're very determined to keep those subscribers. So they'll try to give you as much content and, and titles as possible. And sometimes it's a matter of just like wading through that. And uh, a lot of films uh, but, but, don't get the advertising they deserve. But if it's good content, like, we'll keep on watching. Like, I mean, theoretically, right? Yes. 
No, but <laughs> or or maybe I people mean... want bad content. Maybe people want Adam Sandler movies on Netflix. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, if if you keep watching, you'll end up watching both bad and good. And maybe they'll just the algorithm is the problem here because the algorithm is the one that, that controls Netflix and not uh, the Netflix creative consultants. Uh, even though like they have a, a part in getting those those projects, I feel like the algorithm is just too all powerful uh, to sometimes take that out of the, the equation. What happens when the algorithm is recommending these things to us and we're clicking on things that the algorithm is recommending and then now the algorithm is basing what is being made based on what it had recommended? So it's like almost like a circle that's eating itself. Yeah, that's that, a like, big fear, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about Parasite, which is one of the best movies of last year. I think we all agree. It was Was it number one on our list? I think it was. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it is getting a limited re-release in black and white. Brad, tell us about it. Yes, uh, Neon is giving a limited re-release of Parasite in black and white, uh, and it's something that director uh, Bong Joon Ho has wanted to do as a filmmaker for a long time. Uh, inspired by movies like uh, Nosferatu and the films of uh, Fellini and Kurosawa, uh, John Ford, uh, he's always wanted to make a movie that was in black and white. And this isn't merely just a, a you know a last minute cash grab where they're like, hey, let's release Parasite in, in black and white because it'll help get more buzz. Uh, this is a cut of the movie that was actually completed before Parasite even premiered at Cannes last year, so it's something that they had wanted to do for a while. And uh, it's it, the only problem is is that it's getting a, a very limited release because uh, it will debut at the International Film Festival Rotterdam at the end of January. And then it will play at the Walter Reed Theater in New York on January 30th, the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles on January 31st, and then from January 31st through February 6th, it will be available at the Francesca Beale Theater also in New York. So basically it's just the East and West Coast that will be getting the uh, widest public access to see the black and white cut of Parasite, which is a bit of a bummer for the rest of us. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately it's not something that is even on the Blu-ray for Parasite that's coming out soon. I, I was actually hoping that maybe it was something that was already going to be included there, but uh, it is not. So anyone hoping to see this who doesn't live on those coasts, maybe there'll be a, a future Criterion release that will put it on there or something like yeah. that. I know we're running a little bit long here, but I, I'm I'm very curious about this and what what your thoughts are, because you know I love black and white films, but you know the thing about black and white films is you shoot them in black and white and it it comes out differently than if you were going to shoot it in color and you know uh, color grade it in black and white. And it seems like you know there's directors like uh, uh, like with Mad Max Fury Road and this where they're translating a color image to black and white that does that defeat the purpose like what what value does this bring to the film if it wasn't created in black and white i mean it's it's one thing where it's not as simple as just applying a black and white filter you know they're very oh yeah yeah yeah, they're they're, so they're very carefully going through it and but but, but you you don't get the same look as if you shot in black and white though do you know i mean like it's it's completely different i mean Yes, on one level, sure, but like with digital filmmaking today and what we're able to do, you're pretty, you know, easily able to replicate what you can do if you're shooting in, in black and white. Um, so I, I, don't, I honestly don't think that the difference is really anything that it would will hold the movie back from uh, if it were shot in black and white. Um, I mean, the, uh, Boon Jong Ho himself even says uh, here, he says, I watched the black and white version twice now. 
and at times the film felt more like a fable and gave me the strange sense that I was watching a story from old times. Uh, so it's you know it, it's something where it actually it adds more to it seeing it in black and white even if it's not, uh, you know not necessarily the the exact way it would pe- appear as if it was shot in black and white. Yeah. So I, I I guess I can't just turn my TV to black and white mode and, and watch it. It's, it's different, right? Yeah, totally different. <laughs> HD, are you excited to possibly see Parasite in black and white? I mean, it seems like you're not going to have a chance, but it, it, maybe someday. I'm excited. Actually, it's coming to New York, and oh. um, so I'll. I'll... It's coming for I think like six days or something, so I'm yeah. gonna get a ticket. I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear your report from that and, and if it did does change your viewing experience. Yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, let's get to two last stories. These are kind of intertwined. Uh, the first of which is the Matrix Four. Uh, Hugo Weaving was apparently going to return as Agent Smith, but he it sounds like he is not going to be returning. What do we know, HD? Yes, Hugo Weaving has confirmed that he won't be returning as Agent Smith in The Matrix 4, but uh, according to the actor, there were, the original script had Agent Smith uh, involved in some capacity. Uh, Lana Wachowski had um, approached him a couple years ago to return to the role, um, and Hugo Weaving told Time Out London that uh, he had this offer for the visit, and the offer came for the Matrix. So he knew it was happening, but didn't have the dates. Uh, and it eventually ended up being a matter of scheduling issues, and they went on without him, um, despite uh, Lana Wachowski saying that uh, trying to push the the schedule around and, and make it work for him. But uh, um, so that's uh, so it's not happening. But uh, it, it's a it does make us wonder, like how what who will be replacing the role that Agent Smith has because he was the primary antagonist of the original Matrix films and whether they'll be recasting the character or whether they'll be cutting Agent Smith out of the the script entirely and creating a new villain for the Matrix 4. What do you think it's going to happen? Do you think they're going to recast the character or create a new villain? I don't know. I think that Hugo Weaving is irreplaceable in this role. He just is so chilling and terrifying. So I don't know if they could really recast them i mean the whole thing does play take place in a simulated reality so he could ostensibly look different um and i'm sure there's other actors who could have that same sort of um aura as as weaving but um i kind of get the feeling they'll just create a new character for this it might just be easier to do that so that people won't be comparing the new villain to uh, uh hugo weaving the entire time yeah although i assume you know people that have read this news are going to watch that movie and be like oh this character was originally going to be hugo weaving's agent smith yeah <laughs> think about it that way anyways uh he's you know in the, i think in the same interview he talked about uh why he did not return as red skull for avengers for both of the avengers sequels um brad what do we know yeah so uh obviously we know red skull comes back in avengers infinity war and endgame uh, kind of banished to where the soul stone is and basically the person tasked with telling people how they have to get the soul stone. And uh, Ross Marquand actually played the character because Hugo Weaving didn't return. And uh, a lot of people didn't know until they saw the, the cast for it because Ross Marquand does such a good job at imitating Hugo Weaving's uh, German accent in the movie that it's hard to tell that it's anybody different. And Hugo Weaving was under so much makeup, you can't even tell it's Hugo Weaving when he plays Red Skull anyway. Um, and apparently <clears throat> Marvel did ask him to come back. Uh, a lot of people thought that maybe they hadn't because previous interviews had him saying that uh, he didn't really feel like he wanted to come back and reprise the role. 
Uh, didn't seem like it was anything that would happen in any of the other Captain America movies, maybe the Avengers movies, but even so, he, he just didn't seem like something he was very interested in. But Marvel did ask him, and it seems like it got held up by some good old-fashioned Hollywood negotiations. Uh, so he said by the time they came back around to uh, wanting him to come back as Red Skull, I uh, said, quote, uh, Marvel had pushed back on the contracts that we agreed on, and so the money they offered me for the Avengers was much less than I got for the very first one. And this was for two films. And the promise when we first signed the contracts was that the money would grow each time. Uh, but they said, it's just a voice job, it's not a big deal. And I actually found negotiating uh, with them through my agent impossible. And I didn't really want to do it that much. But I would have done it. So, uh, just they weren't willing to pay him enough to do the role. And on one hand, you can see Hugo Weaving's points. You know, they're, they're, they're wanting him to do, shoot two movies for less money than he was promised before. He's an actor. This is his job. You know, they should follow through on the deal. But at the same time, uh, the role of Red Skull in Infinity War and Endgame amounts to mere minutes. And it's not anywhere near as big of a role as he had in Captain America, the first Avenger. So, you know, yeah, he, it's, he, it's, he could have literally came in and been in like a recording booth for like half a day, I'm assuming. Right. Yes, because there wasn't actually any on-set work for Red Skull since they did visual effects this time instead of full-on makeup. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, it would have been nice to see Hugo even back. But like I said, Ross Marquand did such a good job, uh, you know, playing Red Skull for the limited time that we see him that it's it's not necessarily a, a detriment to the movie that we didn't get Hugo Weaving back, as good as he is as an actor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's sad that he didn't make it in there, but I don't think he's, you know, I don't think anybody watching it feels like he's missing because, yeah, he does just such a great job there. That does it for today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday.